I'm Kayla Branch. And I'm Nuria Martinez-Keel. You're listening to The Source. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the Oklahomans' most impactful stories with the reporters who wrote them. This week, Oklahoma City residents deal with unequal access to high-speed internet. And an Oklahoma City woman gained fame for her role in a recent movie. Joining us is religion editor Carla Hinton. Carla, we're glad to have you this week. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You've been writing stories about Janice Jones, an Oklahoma City woman that became a huge hit for her role in the newest Borat movie. We want to know all about Jones, but first, tell us the premise for the new for the Borat movies because they aren't regular films featuring just normal actors. Okay. Well, I, I will tell you this: uh, my 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 children, my grown adult children. Uh, told me that the best way to describe these uh, films is they are mockumentaries. And and what uh, Sacha Baron Cohen uh, typically does is he uh, goes around uh, to different places and he films people, real real people in real settings, uh, unawares. And he kind of puts the footage together and makes it into a film uh, around his central character whose name is very interesting. And it is Borat. Borat. <laughs> I have problems. <laughs> My kids tried to coach me on how to say it. But anyway, uh, they, the films are, 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 are the, the, the second one is the one that Janice Jones uh, ended up in. In the film, uh, the, the lead character is uh, someone who is from another country. And he comes over to America and his uh, daughter stows away. Uh, stows away. He wasn't wanting to bring her here, but she stows away. So at some point, he looks for someone to be her babysitter. That that's where uh, Janice Jones comes in. And apparently, uh, Cohen, uh, well, his producers uh, came to Oklahoma City and went to this lady's church, Janice Jones's church, Ebenezer Baptist Church, and they uh, were just kind of looking for what they call a black grandmother type. And they, they, uh, the pastor, you know, would think they were thinking it was a person that was going to be in a documentary to mentor this young lady. They weren't satisfied with the people they met. And then, uh, one of the ladies who was trying to help them find someone at the church, she said, Oh, let me call Janice Jones because she'd be great. And so they ended up loving Janice. So, anyway, there are some scenes of her with the young lady. Um, her, they called her Tutar. So that, that's the premise of the, of the movie that Janice Jones is there to mentor this young lady who she thinks is a the daughter of a very controlling father. Okay, yeah, it's no, it's a, a thick storyline. I think just when you look at the fact that it's a, it is a movie, but it's a secret and Jones didn't know. And, and I loved a line in your story that was, you know, how did a church lady end up in an R-rated movie? And like you said, um, you know, they, they came and were looking for someone specifically and that they kept it a secret. Uh, but tell us about Jones. And I'm curious, was she mad when she realized, you know, I'm a church lady and I am in this R-rated movie? You know what? No, she, I, she, to be honest with you, she was very shocked. She, she, you know how she found out? She found out because uh, uh, the producers 
someone, I guess, let it leak that she'd come from this church. And so uh, a, a reporter from the UK got in touch with her pastor and saying that, hey, this she's been, she's in this movie that just premiered on Amazon Prime. And he thought it was a documentary. And they said, no, it's not quite the documentary that you think it is. It's an already film. It's a satirical comedy. And it's not what you think, but she, Janice, comes off really well. You know, the movie, you know, has its has its interesting points in it. But Janice comes off very, very warm and very caring. And she gives a lot of uh, good advice to uh, both the main character and uh, the daughter, daughter character. But but yes, when I tried when I talked to her, she said she's not angry. Now, other media. I saw some headlines for other media that talked to her after I did where they said that she said she was betrayed and that sort of thing. And I went back to her and I asked, I said, did you feel betrayed? You know, did you feel betrayed? No. She said she doesn't feel betrayed. She just was in shock that this is happened. This had happened. She is a, she was a auditor for insurance company for over 30 years. And uh, recently she was a receptionist at a, a counseling center and unfortunately for her, when when the pandemic hit, uh, you know, Oklahoma, she was laid off. She was was it last hired first fired. That's how she told me. So she was laid off and, and was without a job like a lot of different Oklahomans. So she was paid for the for her role in what she thought was a documentary about thirty six hundred dollars. But now she has uh, received uh, there's a GoFundMe account that her pastor started for her and people all over the world. Uh, the last the last time I looked at it, which was early this week, she had one hundred and fifty four thousand dollars in that GoFundMe account. It, it's just an extraordinary story and probably my favorite of the year because it's just so bizarre. Carla, the reaction to Jones's role in this movie has been huge. People were posting all over social media. Tens of thousands of people have read your stories. And like you mentioned, a GoFundMe had raised over 170000 for her, um, especially because she lost her job uh, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. In your opinion, why are people so excited about and interested in this woman's story? Well, you know what? It goes back to what what Kayla was asking me, and, and the li- line in my story: How did a How did an Oklahoma City church lady end up in an already film? It's because you know they realized that she really didn't know. She was being herself, uh, which is a warm, caring, uh, you know, uh, grandmother. She is a grandmother. She's only sixty two. She looks forty two, um, but she's and she's spry. But uh, you know, she was just herself. She was caring for this young woman, and she kind of took the uh, Borat character to task for how he was treating her. And so a lot of people felt like she was the most genuine thing in the movie. And particularly because she had no idea she was, she was in this movie and actually talking to a fairly well-known actor in uh, Sasha Baron Cohen. So I think that's why people are drawn to it. And they also understood right off the bat that she probably, because she didn't know it was a movie that was obviously she didn't get paid, you know, a lot for it. And here she was, uh, you know, she's been laid off. And so I think a lot of people just like the fact that she was uh, so caring. And, and, and so here's the thing. What, what's that old uh, saying? Um, integrity is what you do when people aren't looking. Well, there you go. Yeah. I mean, I, part of my reaction and what I wondered your thoughts on this are, you know, it's been a heavy year, I think, in a, a lot of cases for most people. And this, like you mentioned, it's bizarre, it's, but it's kind of uplifting to see, you know, other still like good people out there that are trying to help others. You know, it's like a, a good uplifting news story. 
Yes, and, and that and you're right. And that's another thing that people were looking for something, you know, someone else to cheer on, you know, in this it, something happy in this funny and a lot of ways awful awful year and i think that's why it's one of my favorite stories because it gave me something else to think about and and uh you know do stories on besides you know covid related stories and and other other things that are going on this year that just seem it just seems to come you know one after another but it was it was an interesting story and it's funny it is funny and if you watch the film because the night before i interviewed her i watched the film and i I, and it's not my kind of film i'm not gonna lie it's not my kind of film my kids were kind of surprised i was watching it but i thought i have to watch it because i'm interviewing her and so i need to watch it and i laughed there were (laughs) there were places that i laughed and um so you know it probably is giving people a lot of lot of laughs you know for 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 whatever reason yeah and so Sasha Baron Conan the um, lead actor who plays Borat uh, he donated a hundred thousand dollars to the church to, to Jones's church where the producers found her at so how did that come about why did he do that well, this is interesting. So, so when uh, the uh, pastor of of Janice Jones's church, he when, when he was setting up this GoFundMe account, you know, he was. I think he was. His wording was, you know, obviously it's a hoax. Jokes on us. Okay, we're okay with that. But the fact of the matter is, she only got this amount of money, and apparently, this is a wildly popular film right now. And so he and she's unemployed, you know, and um, you know, seeking work. And so it, he just thought it would be nice for people if they really felt something or inspired by her, you know, he would set this GoFundMe page. So the next thing you know, uh, uh, they, they had the producers calling uh, last week and were talking to her and, and, and Sasha Baron Cohen called her as well to kind of talk to her to see how she was. And I bet he does that with a lot of people because imagine you do this and you string all the, this footage of real people together and then they're in this film, they have no idea. And then it comes out You'd be curious as to know what 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 are they thinking? Do they hate him? Do they love him? And apparently, she doesn't hate him. You know, obviously, you know, she wasn't the only one that this happened to. Um, so th- while that was happening, though, the ice storm had happened. In this particular church, Ebenezer uh, Missionary Baptist Church, and um, right off of uh, Thirty Six and Kelly, is a very community minded. And the night before, a police officer had come out. A police, some a law enforcement official had come and asked the pastor if he would open his doors to, of the church to people who were in need, who who were without heat and you know cold. And so he did. So they had all these things going on there. And then I went went that next day. So they had uh, people that were trying to stay there to stay warm. Um, there was a group uh, get go there getting giving flu shots. Um, World Vision was there giving out food. The pastor talked to Cohen when he called and he was the pastor kind of showed him everything that was going on because, you know, he wants to show him his church. And so I think uh, Sasha Baron Cohen saw, you know, that this church is doing some uh, good things for the community. And uh, that is obviously where they found Janice Jones. So he he gave the money. That's kind of that's kind of what I think happened. And and Carla, I was kind of curious how that money is supposed to be split up, because from what I understand, he uh, Cohen donated the the hundred thousand to the GoFundMe that the church had set up for uh, Miss Jones. Exactly, how are they going to be splitting that up? Or am I do I totally misunderstand the situation? Okay, no, no. He actually, I, uh, from what I understand, the money was wired to the church, church's bank, there, and and the church has has, uh, has said they're going to earmark it for the community. And and I have, and you know, I don't know if they're actually going to do that or not because you know I'm not a member and I I can't be there twenty four seven to see. But I will say this, that I have done a bunch of stories uh, on that church um, 
for a while, and they're always doing something. Um, early this summer, they were they had uh, connected with World Vision to take uh, food to have a food food drives here, not food drives, but food distributions. But also, they took a lot of that food to the black towns in in uh, Oklahoma. Uh, the pastor rented uh, a U-Haul or a, a van or something, and he, he they were doing that with some of their own funds. So um, the idea that, that that they are going to use it for uh, the community needs and community support isn't isn't that far off. Gotcha. So the 170k in her GoFundMe, that's going to her. That's going to her. Yes, she yes, really received that's going a lot. To her. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, absolutely. I asked her about that because I have to say every time I've talked to her, it, I, I'll check before I call her, and I'll I'll check, and I'm like, "What do you think about this? What do you think about this?" She's like, "It's amazing." She she just. She's just so shocked. And at one point I asked her, what do your kids think about this? And at that point, the kids didn't even know. And the other funny thing about her is that she hasn't seen the film yet. So, so I, so, cause I keep asking her, you know, have you seen the film? Have you seen the film? And she's like, no, I haven't seen it. And you know what she meant? She may never see it. Well, I mean, the story kind of keeps going too, because Jones has knowingly accepted this time, uh, another role in a satirical movie. So tell us about that. Yeah. She's going to, to, to play an angel in a, a film, uh, that will be, I believe that the, they're going to produce it in Canada. And uh, it's it's another comedy. And one of the writers of this particular uh, movie uh, was a writer for South Park. Okay, so that tells you a little bit about that. I mean, if she's, you know, true to form. uh, So I just think that is fascinating. And apparently, even before I interviewed her, she was already getting requests for other, you know, other uh, productions. And I I told her, I said, you're probably going to need to get an agent. I just kind of said that, you know. Uh, in passing, but I don't know, maybe she might, you know, maybe she might have to do that. But uh, she doesn't, apparently she's okay with, with uh, doing it. And maybe, you know, this is her fame, you know, her famous moment right now. And, and uh, maybe hopefully this time she'll have a little bit more say about what, what, what she actually does. So that's going to be interesting. We'll have to keep our eyes peeled for that movie. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Well, Carla, Maybe we are seeing the burgeoning movie career of of an Oklahoma City woman here. Thank you so much for writing the story and telling us all about it. All right. Thank you. Thank you. I'd love to talk about it. We have technology reporter Dale Dinwalt here to talk about unequal internet access in Oklahoma City. And Dale, you wrote a story that shared how arbitrary internet service can be even in urban areas. You told the story of Oklahoma City resident Jacob North, who struggled to get broadband connection to his home, even though people who live just across the street from him have fast internet service. So one line in your story that stands out is, quote, it's like living next to water, but you can't get a drink, end quote. Now, why why is it so difficult for Jacob, who ironically to me is a software developer, right. to get high-speed internet access where he lived? It's it's hard because of of where he lives, um, uh, at, at least at the beginning. When those homes were built, um, the idea of having an internet connection in your home was um, not even a thought in people's minds. Um, uh, really, the internet wasn't really a thing and and if it was it was sitting in some university or government computer system um but now as uh, people need internet for their daily lives uh, they need it for school they need it for work uh, they need it to access uh, any number of government services um uh, easily and effectively 
Uh, it, it's become really this common thing that you really have to have. And the standard by which the FCC and, um, you know, any number of uh, organizations that push for increased service to high-speed internet, the, the benchmark really for having a good internet connection is about 25 megs. And the people who live in this neighborhood um, can't get that. Um, the, the best that they can do is D, a DSL line, which is through your telephone, which is not um, 25 megs, or uh, they can get a satellite internet, which can reach uh, speeds that high, but um, the reliability um, for something like that is, is not great. And anyone who has satellite internet will tell you that uh, satellite uh, internet reliability is um, is far less superior than something with uh, like a fiber optic line. And continuing on after these homes were built and um, the the internet service was never connected because nobody had internet service back then, uh, it, it just never was connected um, for a lack of demand, right? This is a, a low-income neighborhood, and typically you'll see ISPs, internet service providers, going into neighborhoods, new neighborhoods where uh, people will want their service and will buy it. Um, or if there's a large demand of people asking their internet s- service provider for to to wire up an apartment, uh, obviously they'll take a look at that. But you know, AT and T and Cox uh, both laid it out. They they said you know demand um, that they they make decisions about where to go based on um, the uh, the demand for their service. Dale, I found that very interesting what you just said. You know, especially when you talk about the supply and demand of uh, certain areas of the city. Where I live in Oklahoma City, I live in an apartment that was built a long, long time uh, before internet service was a part of people's everyday life as well. And yet I'm, I am able to access uh, quality home broadband. I was wondering if you could walk us through the basics. What's the difference between broadband and the type of internet access Jacob's home originally had? How much faster is it? Right. So the internet service that people in that neighborhood were getting, including Jacob, um, was maybe two to five megs uh, download speed, uh, which is um, pretty much the basic, the most basic that you can expect to get out of any kind of internet service uh, nowadays. Um, With um, so much information um, that you can download uh, from the internet uh, that uh, certain apps require that video playback requires um, that programs that you use that you might use for work or school require um, it, it's really just not enough um, uh, to to um, to sustain you know all of the things that someone might need to do or might want to do um, you know obviously it's a it's a spectrum um, if you have uh, um, a lot of needs if you're streaming video obviously you're going to need a lot um, better internet uh, connection, um, but if um, all you're doing is is reading email, or maybe browsing a couple of websites, then um, obviously you don't need that much. And so, um, uh, the probably the best speed that you can get in an internet connection right now in a wired internet connection is about one gigabyte of download, which is um, you know a couple order magnitudes. Uh, greater than uh, what people living in Oak Grove uh, have access to right now. And in your story, it said that it was up to 10 times faster if you have this broadband access. And that's 
that's just nuts. I think about, you know, we're all working from home outside of the newsroom. And what if everything took me 10 times longer? It would be so hard to get to get all the things I need to get done done. Right. And and that's that that's the the basic that's the the lowest sort of benchmark standard for what uh, is considered broadband or high speed internet access is that that ten times greater uh, you know so so the people in this neighborhood are are really disadvantaged when it comes to having uh, quality internet speed yeah and so this is a common problem kind of you gave us a little bit of an intro earlier for people living in government subsidized homes which were mainly built in the 60s and 70s when like you said there wasn't really a high demand for internet at home and i feel like there are a lot of threads here that we can go into and that will answer the question of why high-speed internet is an unaffordable luxury in housing run by housing authorities. Um, you know, it seems like one of the main conflicts is the cost of installation of these particular cables that are needed and who, who kind of has to shoulder that, whether it's a housing authority like the Oklahoma City Housing Authority or if it's the um, provider who, you know, they need to come in or the customer. I don't know. Kind of kind of walk us through that. Yeah, it can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars for um, an ISP to uh, make connections throughout an apartment complex or uh, through an entire neighborhood, it, it's very costly for them to put in the infrastructure. Now, ISPs have spent uh, an almost unbelievable amount of money um, laying fiber and making connections up to homes all across the country. Uh, they spent over a trillion dollars over the past like 20 years or so um, to, to make these connections across the country. Um, but you will have these outliers, uh, especially in, uh, in urban areas where they you know, may, may have not gotten to yet or the demand wasn't there. Um, a lot of the discussion is focused on rural areas, understandably, um, um, and a lot of the government policy um, around broadband and internet access is focused on making sure that ISPs can affordably get connections out into these areas that uh, historically have gone without um, uh, because as an ISP, you start where the people are. Uh, you start where the most people are. You start where you can get you can get the, the best bang for your buck, so to speak. Um, and so um, places like Oak Grove have um, been disadvantaged. Jacob North will tell you it's because they're low income and that ISPs aren't interested in uh, providing um, low income uh, internet access um, uh, or internet access to low income folks or really making those connections and spending the money uh, to put connections in. Um, the ISPs will tell you it's, it's a, it is a matter of money, but um, you know, it's not something that they can necessarily, you know, spend a ton of money on if, uh, if there's not going to be a whole lot of demand for it. Dale, I think there are some people out there who would make the argument that these high poverty neighborhoods like Oak Grove and, and like public housing neighborhoods are intentionally excluded. Uh, I think they use the term digital redlining uh, by, by excluding high poverty neighborhoods from uh, these companies' service areas. Could you explain what people mean when they say digital redlining, um, and, and how do these companies respond to that accusation? Do they have a responsibility to provide internet access to everyone, no matter what neighborhood they live in? Oh, that, that one is a really good question. But redlining is um, a term 
that um, is most often applied to how um, cities and real estate developers and and landowners who uh, are, are developing uh, areas of residential real estate um, would uh, enact policies or simply not sell to um, to to people of color. Um, you know, a lot of this you know was happening during the civil rights era, era and as as suburbs grew, um, um, there was a lot of uh, redlining basically you draw a red line and and no minorities could go past there could own property or or homes or live you know past that line um it's being used in this context uh, because after an analysis of where um of, of which neighborhoods have access to high speed internet um the the data seems pretty clear that poor areas don't have access um i haven't seen any evidence that this is a willful decision or uh, any decision made because of, um, uh, you know, f- from ISPs saying, oh, we don't want to um, offer internet service to poor people. I-, I haven't seen anything like that. Um, w- what's more reasonable and understandable is that it's simply um, an effect of, uh, of, of the economy um, or an economic effect that um, uh, an ISP is not going to spend a million dollars wiring a neighborhood if uh, they only get one or two customers out of it. And, and then if you want to boil it down to the most basic uh, uh, situation there, I, th- I think that's probably why you see poor uh, areas of the country, even in urban areas, go without access to high-speed internet because it's simply not cost-effective for ISPs to put that uh, in there. And so that's why the ISPs uh, frequently ask for uh, government help, a government subsidy to uh, to offer um, uh, internet to these folks. Um, that's from Congress, and or that could be from local governments um, in the Oak Grove neighborhood, which is under authority from the uh, Oklahoma County Housing Authority. Um, uh, the ISP wanted two hundred fifty thousand dollars from that IS from that uh, housing authority to go in and uh, put internet connections into Oak Grove. And, and that's the kind of subsidy that I think ISPs want, um, a little bit of uh, a buy-in so that they don't lose a, a ton of money uh, up front. And to the question of uh, is, it, is, is high-speed internet access you know, a, a basic human right, and I think there's a really good argument that could be made for that, especially right now during the pandemic. You, know, we, you and I are having to talk um, over the internet for work. Uh, because we can't be in the same room with each other. And uh, kids going to school, they don't go to school right now. They go to um, their Zoom class, um, a lot of kids. So uh, uh, the internet, I think, really is essential to uh, to have uh, to really exist in, in today's world. And high-speed internet is the best way to access that. I'm so glad you brought up education I do want to ask an education-related question. The pandemic, like you just said, has shown just how integral the internet is to our way of life. Uh, With schools closed, it's been one of the only ways students could get an education. But if you're a child living in public housing, what do you do when internet access is out of your reach? There, there are probably a number of ways uh, for you, for you to get that kind of internet access. Um, there, there's a decent chance that somebody in the household has a a cell phone that uh, is connected to 
um, some kind of uh, 4G or 4G LTE network. Um, that does a lot of uh, can do a lot of the heavy lifting. Uh, I think toward getting uh, a high speed internet access uh, connection for that household um, to to run you know any number of programs or Zoom or video uh, for uh, your particular classroom. I know that in uh, in Oklahoma. Um, the State Department of Education handed out um, tens of thousands of mobile hotspots. Basically, you, you, you have this little box, you take it home, and it uh, provides Internet for you over the wireless cellular network. Um, and uh, beyond that, you know, uh, the, yeah, I'm sure libraries offer wireless Internet connections. And, and I know in Oak Grove and other places uh, in the Oklahoma City Housing or the Oklahoma County Housing Authority um, uh, coverage area, their, their properties, they do offer wireless Internet access at their community areas uh, so that you can pull up into a parking lot outside, socially distance, sit in your car and go to school. I'm curious, you mentioned the State Edu- uh, Board of Education trying to address this need. And I know more broadly, I mean, the state has uh, focused on digital transformation has kind of been the phrase. And there was a secretary of digital transformation and um, there's a task force that's going to be looking at rural broadband access, which is a little bit of a, a different but similar issue. And I'm curious, is this problem getting the attention that it needs? I think... It is getting attention. It is getting attention. Um, more often than not, it's going to be the rural broadband uh, question. Um, uh, you know, uh, governments paying what they can to install lines that go, you know, from a metropolitan area out into a county that may only have a thousand uh, people in uh, a particular area, a service area, uh, but they're, you know, all spread out uh, over, you know, a few hundred square miles. Um, uh, it takes a, a lot of work and a lot of money uh, and a lot of time, frankly, uh, to get that done. Um, uh, it definitely could be a, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of room for, I think, growth in um, the discussion in state legislatures and in Congress about how to um, make internet broadband internet access a universal uh, service. Um, and you can lay the lines um, or, and, and I, I should probably bring this up because AT&T and their responses to me um, talked about a holistic solution to this answer, uh, to the to the question of high speed internet access, um, and it's uh, it's worth mentioning that if you can get say five G um, wireless cellular service to connect to your home computer, um, that is just as fast or faster than anything you could get with a fiber connection um, uh, uh, that is you know run under the ground up to your house. Um, and and so AT and T is viewing this holistically, um, and I, and I think that probably factors into a lot of the discussions that people have about the government subsidizing um, increased broadband access, um, because I, there's a case to be made if 
you know, why spend this money for uh, traditional fixed wired um, uh, infrastructure if all we can do, uh, if all we have to do is give maybe give someone a cell phone or um, subsidize some of the cost of a, of a 5G um, cell phone plan? Uh, if that will meet the needs for uh, the people who live in, in rural areas or these low-income areas uh, that don't yet have a, a fixed wire, wired internet uh, connection. With all of these circumstances at play, I'm curious what ended up happening to Jacob North, the uh, source you featured in your story, with his quest for high-speed high speed internet. Yeah, he he has fought for months, if not years, to get people to recognize the issue that he and his neighbors have. His mother lives there uh, in the same neighborhood. He has friends and other family who live there who have gone without internet access and really watched the world pass them by when it comes to uh, to getting high-speed internet. Um, his, uh, uh, he has found a solution. Um, I called him... Uh, uh, I called him back right before my story was published to get an update from him and to see how things were going uh, a, a few weeks after I had first talked to him. And and he told me that uh, after several discussions with uh, uh, a local uh, uh, or several discussions with an Internet service provider that had a, a high-speed line pretty much running alongside the neighborhood, alongside his house, uh, he was able to, to have someone come out and connect that. Now, he did not get a residential internet connection. He had to get a business internet connection. Um, even though he's not a business, he's just a guy, uh, right? So he, he's paying, um, he'll eventually pay like 200 bucks a month for this high-speed internet access um, that uh, really is not an option uh, for other people in his area because it's a, a business plan. Well, again, this story, listeners, if you have not read this story, I cannot recommend it enough. It was so it was so well done. My jaw dropped reading it all the way through. Uh, and Dale, we really appreciate you coming on and answering all these questions and really giving us an in-depth look at high-speed internet access in the metro and the state more broadly. Well, thanks for having me on. I, I like talking about this tech stuff, um, especially things that might not be on people's radars, like whether someone uh, in, their, uh, in their city has access to high-speed internet. Thanks for joining us this week. You can read all these stories and more every day in the Oklahoman and at oklahoman.com. Check back next Friday for a new episode.